Welcome everybody back again for another Rail Talk with Shoe Smith. I'm Michelle Craven Faulkner and I am Shoe Smith's national lead for rail and also a partner in our commercial team. I'm delighted today to welcome a good friend of mine, Mike Roberts, along to come and join me. And Mike is a railway chaplain, so a number of you might not appreciate that the railway has its own uh, gang of travelling railway chaplains, but I'll let Mike tell us a little bit more about that. Mike, over to you. So my name's Mike Roberts. I'm one of the team of railway chaplains, as Michelle mentioned, and I cover an area of the rail network in the northwest of England, stretching from Crewe in the south up to the Scottish border on the west side of the country. And the railway chaplaincy team have been around since 1881. Um, there's about 18 or 19 of us, and we cover the entire railway network across England, Scotland and Wales supporting staff from the train operating companies, freight operating companies, Network Rail, the British Transport Police, and the entire supply chain and railway family, providing support for their staff teams um, around issues around trauma, issues post-incident, and general well-being support for a lot of the railway family. We are a team who will work within different companies in different ways and we look to be there for the the family and across the railway to support them um in different ways as their company needs it at different times i had no idea the railway chaplaincy had been around since 1881 you haven't been around since 1881 though have you you're really good for it <laughs> you've been around now for five years haven't you so yeah. you you joined at a perfect time so you had two years under your belt when the world shut down because of COVID. How much did your job change during COVID? I think it's really interesting to look how the railway is constantly changing. Um, my dad was a huge um, rail enthusiast and grew up in the um, the 60s. He was a mail boy at Tamworth um, on the West Coast mainline. Um, used to either move mail bags from one level to the other or apparently more frequently than that, sleep on them is neat warehouse at the back. Fabulous. Um, and when I started on the railway, my dad told me loads of stories back from his day. And even in 2018, when I started, the railway had massively changed. And now, five years on, we've really had those three elements. We've had the 2018 and 19, this pre-COVID, this yep. normal time if we want to call it that the capacity old norm ish, capacity issues yeah. and standing in somebody's armpit yep um yep. we all did that um and then we had covid which was a massive shift mm -hmm. and it wasn't a gradual change it no. was sort of first of march 2020 we're, we're in everyone's armpits we're, we're commuting on the 756 yep. we're, we're all going into the the commuter hubs of manchester and birmingham and london and then by the 1st of April, we weren't. Our trains are at 5% of capacity. Mm. And we've got a service that is being redefined by getting key workers to their destinations. Yeah. And all those staff that have got used to working in one way or another over 20, 30 years, in some cases, of railway being busy, mm. are standing there not quite knowing what they're doing. Mm. And then, of course, we've also had now, maybe COVID didn't end at a definite point, but we've had that shift back where we're looking at, we're using these words, recovery. Mm. 
And we've not gone to a, a post-COVID kind of era where COVID isn't there anymore. No. But we're going to a period where we're now living in a world that has been changed by it. Mm, absolutely. And so when when we were all still going through lockdown, were you still out and about? Were you still... Because essentially you, you travel around, don't you? You have your patch and you, you know, have rail pass, we'll travel. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've covered... Throughout the lockdown, I cover around about 200 stations, um, eight train operators, um, and top of the patch, the bottom that I cover is about 250 miles. And when the initial message came out from Boris that said that that night when he got on TV and said, you must now stay at home, we all stayed at home for a bit. Um, we tried to um, remember that day, that week when we all had to learn to use Teams in about a week. <laughs> I think I'm still learning. Uh, it was... It was hilarious because you'd sit there, we'd have a staff meeting, and I've got one colleague who, bless her, and I don't know how she did it, every meeting, she's on her side. <laughs> and we tried to, to work like that. We tried to suss out um, ways of keeping in touch with people. But if you ever did a Zoom pub quiz, you know that doing it on Zoom or doing it on Teams isn't quite the same. And so we had around about, um, I'd read about, six to eight weeks at home um incidentally moved my mother in at that time so she wouldn't be by herself um yeah there's challenges there um when all of a sudden you're you're nearly 40 and you move your mum into your house and it was great i loved using the line when you're in my house you'll live by my rules <laughs> well it's not like she could come in late <laughs> no no um but it did mean i had to watch all manner of rubbish on telly um <laughs> And then um, as we got to sort of the end of May and there was a little more movement, um, I had a couple of conversations with some of my um, directors and train operators. And as we were sort of looking at what the most urgent need was, um, I started going to Liverpool each day and cleaning trains. Do you remember we got really excited about cleaning? Yes. We saw happy birthday every day as we washed our hands. Um, I remember leaving the, the parcels outside the front door as well because yeah. we couldn't possibly have them in the house. Fighting with people in Asda over the last bottle of hand sanitizer, mm. And so I ended up going into Liverpool each day and learning the art of cleaning. Um, I made sure I never told my mother or my wife I learned this because I didn't want to have to start cleaning at home as well. News, newsflash, you do know this is being recorded for a podcast. I do know my <laughs> wife has never listened to anything <laughs> I've said in my life anyway. But... So you'd go down and you'd like have your your mask, your gloves, your your sort of spray that mm -hmm. you know, will kill anything. And you're sort of literally wiping down every table, every handle, and you're realising how much human contact we have mm -hmm. with things. Yeah. Um, and as the summer went on, you started to see people move around and like people getting back on the trains in the summer, like the kids would be coming in from Wigan, going out to the beaches near Southport. And you'd be looking at them and thinking sort of, is this essential travel? And you had that suspicion, didn't you, of people back in COVID when you're thinking, well, you don't look like a key worker. And you'd laugh at people and just discuss it. <laughs> um, and then you gradually had this, this transition from, as they started to recruit more, um, we don't call them train cleaners anymore, train presentation operatives. Yeah. And we'd go into that, um, that stage where you're going in and talking to people and 
I remember going into a, a ticket office on the um, the line out of Liverpool to Manchester and looking at the figures that he said he'd done over the previous couple of months. And he'd gone from six, 700 passengers a day to he'd had a week where he'd had three passengers in the week. I mean, there's, there's been a lot said and a lot discussed about kind of the financial and the, the commercial impact that that has. But from the people that you were talking to out and about, so to go from having that six, 700 tickets a week to having three in a week, what kind of impact was that having on people? I mean, did they just kind of take it in a stride and take a book along? Um, I know someone that started to do various um, online classes okay. because actually you, you just, if you're, if you live at home by yourself mm. and you go to work for your socialization, because if you imagine a lot of these small stations with booking offices, they're working by themselves. Mm. They can be there for a 10 hour shift mm. and, and not see anybody and no one comes in. Wow. And you just think, even if you're not an extrovert, that's that's trying on anybody's mental health. Just sitting there, sort of watching, mm. wondering if anyone will come. And um, I think one of the really interesting things when you had those discussions were people went into lockdown. And I don't know if you had the same discussions I did, but when Boris told us all to stay at home, like we were still thinking we might be on holiday or going away as normal in in May. Oh, it was it was going to be three weeks, and it was actually a little bit exciting. Yeah, novelty. It was like, oof, you know, I've not got a commute. It's yeah. going to be a bit of fun. And sort of there was sort of the queuing up at Tesco. I remember when they put the the lights above the door. Yes, the men in the green light. A bit like a Formula One driver. And you sort of had your hand, your hands on the handle of the shopping trolley, and you're thinking like, "Ready, ready," and then you go in before they. And the really, do you remember the really rebellious feeling when you went away against the one-way system? Yes. And you felt yes. like you were a criminal. Absolutely. Yes, I remember many occasions wondering if I'd get struck off by the law society. Yeah, and, uh, I'd gone, I'd followed the wrong arrow. It, it's very strange thinking back to it now. Yeah. Because it feels like a completely different lifetime ago when it's, well, we came out of, we finally came out of lockdown well over a year afterwards. So it's only a couple of years ago yeah. that, that it, it ended. I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm sure that I'm not alone when I say every once in a while I quite fancy one for a few days, you know, a little, a little mini lockdown just to, uh, to stay at home for a little bit. That probably says more about me than anything else. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it, how how we cope during lockdown says quite a lot about our introvert extrovert mm -hmm. status and that happened on the railway as well a lot of people who are in customer service roles who like it do it because they enjoy the interaction mm -hmm. with people and as you've as we we saw it as i say we dropped off that cliff and we look at those pretty passenger graphs that the dft put out you see that it's sort of barely normal for a while it drops off as people started to think and then on that day sort of that 23rd yeah. of whatever of, of may march it literally just tanked didn't it yeah it did. and we went to work one day and we didn't the next the next no and sort of we put in all those conversations about we had about furlough and about recovery and about protection of people's income and actually would we, how would we have looked at it if we'd have said we'll still be discussing this in 18 months? Mm. How would we have done it differently? Mm. 
And I think the railway has been one of those places where we looked at it and um, I managed to keep some souvenirs from my time on the railway. And one of the things I've got around the chair on my desk is one of those very aggressive little signs that says, do not use. Do not sit here. Yeah. Um, and sort of, I, I always said I would take it with me when I went out traveling. I didn't want people sitting next to me. You just put it on the chair next to you. Um, but we did. We learn a whole different way. And even now, like we're what two two years on this week from the first lockdown, and I was in a lift with six people, and it feels strange. And it does feel strange. Mm, and does. you get on a train. If someone comes and sits next to you, that feels weird. Still, mm. Um, mm. I think especially as we are seeing numbers going back up again, and trains are getting busy. I. I I have to say, I mean, I've I've noticed mask wearing creeping up again. I'm seeing more and more people starting to wear masks. Yeah. Um, on busy trains, on the underground as well, it seems to be creeping back again. Um, but it's yeah, there was there was so much focus, wasn't there, across every sector, but on the commercial and the financial impact, but. Without recognising exactly as you just said, there were people going into work, go, actually leaving the house to go into work, and it's still having pretty much the same effect on them psychologically. They still weren't seeing people. They still were just kind of sitting there on their own. Um, and it's quite easy sometimes. Well, we were all in our own little bubbles, weren't we, in, at yeah. that point? So it was, it's quite easy to overlook that, really. Um, you know, you, you could you knew that people being moving around and people key workers were going to work, but the fact that those key workers might be sitting there on their own isn't necessarily something that people contemplated. Yeah, I think when you look at um, how the curve of recovery has been so slow, we realise how much as a country we we did adapt. Mm. Like we've gone back to this work at home thing, and. Like if you go into some of the big offices now where there were a thousand people in an office before COVID and now right, it's great when you want to queue up for lunch, but everywhere else you walk around and you feel deserted. It feels deserted. There's a a huge network rail office in in Manchester and this idea now of, of going from everyone had their desk and you'd be squashed up next to each other so even now, you, personal space is more guarded than it was before. Mm-hmm. And we're now at that stage where people do want to restrict that conversation. I, I met somebody the other day, it was last week, and I got an elbow bump for the first time in years. <laughs> and I was like, I remember when we used to bang elbows. Everyone during the sort of, as a, so your elbow was like, you couldn't catch COVID from the elbow. Um, I think it's probably because most of our elbows were covered. Well, that's that's perhaps why. Maybe, but you never know. I sort of. But there's that thing, isn't there, where we look at everyone now and we look at other people differently. Have you ever coughed in an enclosed space in the last year? And this is part of the thing. I've had train you managers. You can hear the whiplash of people's heads turning. I've had train managers who've been asked to speak to someone because the person in front of them has coughed. And this has changed our approach to everything. And we now look at everything still through a COVID lens. Mm. Um, and we're always on this this talk about rail recovery. And some people think how, and you get a lot of people on social media who talk about 
how do we go back to a pre-COVID railway? And the truth is we're not going to. No, but, but, but actually we're seeing, I mean, if we're talking about pure passenger numbers, you're now seeing far more leisure travel, Yeah, weirdly, than, than we did before. I don't know what happened during COVID that made us all think, I know, let's go away for the weekend somewhere and use the train, whereas before we might have driven. But yeah, you haven't got the commuter traffic as much, have you now? It's it's far more, it's the balance now between leisure. I mean, I think some would argue that we're getting close back to figures again, but it's just a different, a different times, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the aspiration is that we get back to um, a railway that delivers the same revenue, the same passenger numbers in whatever way, but actually it will be a different railway. Yeah. And I compared it recently to the idea of how we are after we are bereaved or after we experience grief because actually we can go back to the way um, in terms of our productivity, in terms of our patterns, but actually the experience of grief and bereavement changes the person we are afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I think there's that, the idea of actually we've had this trauma of um, the pandemic and it has affected the way we look forward at things and the way we respond. So I think for me, um, we look, and there's a, a quote that I read earlier where it said, opportunity does not stand still. Yeah. And I really like that because actually we've now got this opportunity and as we've come out and we've not exactly had a normal time since we've come out of COVID because we've had these pretty much, from, we've finished the pandemic treatment yeah. of the railway and we went straight into this season of industrial disputes. Well, and also, you know, utilities issues and raw material issues yeah. and everything. So everything. We've, we've, we've got this strange new world mm-hmm. and we've got an opportunity to say, how does the railway balance and present itself to serve the 2022 world as a 23 world as opposed to the 2019 world yeah and we've already had those discussions with um, andrew haynes talking about well engineering works blockades throughout august and bank holiday weekends are they still if we've got a leisure market absolutely i mean the the, the, you know the disruption that was caused at christmas yeah by just evidence that didn't it i mean admittedly there were some other things going on but but yeah the engineering works needs a real focus. So, I mean, part of your job is, as we've said, is that you you travel around on the network and you support people. So, post-COVID, what do you think the biggest challenges are that people are facing? Are they, are they, do they feed into that kind of general feeling at the moment that, you know, we've, we've got this living wage issue, you know, the cost of everything's increasing? Is it that or is it other things because you, you're looking after a whole wide range of people here aren't you you know everybody from the british transport police through to people in the supply chain to depot workers to train drivers i mean you name it you and, and i have to say this mike i think one of the best things that that you said to me um last year i think it was was about the way that you make sure that you can talk to everybody and i think for me it was the fact that you'd found a website that summarizes what happened on love island the night before so that you didn't have to watch it but that you were able to talk to people about it. I will literally do anything for my job that I... I this is absolutely... For my job, 
I will clean poo off the floor of a train. Wonderful. So I will not watch Love Island. <laughs> I think we should get that put in a t-shirt for you. I will happily wear that. But, um, but yeah, it's about meeting people where they are. So I know that um, particularly at a couple of my depots, um, if you want to have a conversation with them or particularly engage with them during a conversation, um, they will always discuss what was happening on Love Island. And it's interesting because the biggest discussions around mental health were um, after some of the big Love Island controversies and after some of the tragedy that hit um, the Love Island team, um, we're, we're particularly after the, the death of Caroline Flack. Um, but absolutely, people are facing, I think it's fair to say, a lot of people are facing the same challenge in different ways. They're viewing it from different directions and the challenge at the moment can be labelled with the word uncertainty. Okay. Um, before um, COVID set in, there were a lot of people who would have a certain amount of certainty when back when interest rates were low, when energy prices were stable. And I think a lot of people's worries about energy prices is, well, actually, they didn't know where the curve was going next time. Um, food prices, well, I've seen the price of my tin of whatever, or um, I've seen the cost of petrol do this and go up. And they're wondering how much further it can go. Like, really early on during the pandemic, petrol slipped to below a pound a litre. When we when they couldn't store enough of it, it dropped right down. Um, maybe in your posh petrol stations it was more expensive. Um, but up in the north... It was... I don't think I drove for so... No, no my mum put petrol in once in 2020. Um, but now, then... When we had the problems and when um, there was the invasion of Ukraine, it went to two pounds and stuff. And people would go along the motorway and take a picture of the petrol station because, and they'd have to put it on Facebook because look how shocking it is. And there's that sort of, well, how much further up can it go? Mm. How much more can um, the price of my coffee pods go up? And the things that you think actually are little things, all this is about uncertainty. It's about saying yesterday... I was confident that yeah. like inflation was at what a couple of percent yeah. interest rates were virtually zero and yeah. um, the cost of living was stable and that meant that the stresses about wages not going up were less urgent and now we're seeing people and they're saying I just don't know what tomorrow is going to throw at me mm. because um, there's some places where people are saying you know what the cost of heating the house and there's people who were living to a budget before covid who are now finding that they're living to a budget that's above what they're earning and that has obviously all the consequences of debt and of of fear mm. that bring it in so i think uncertainty manifests itself in lots of different ways we've seen within um the industrial disputes over the last couple of months these conversations about um the union looking for guarantees against um, compulsory redundancies when we've seen these um, suggestions in certain policies in the DFT about looking to introduce driver-only operation when we're looking at questions about well will they continue to put catering on trains just those kind of dropping those comments at the DFT 
all of a sudden scares the pants. It's a ripple effect, isn't off it? Yeah. On, like, when they say, do we have caterers on the train this time next year, how does that make the 100 caterers at Preston feel? Mm. And mm. thinking, what will I be doing in a year's time? Mm. And I think there is that uncertainty um, around how does this, what does this mean for who I am in 12 months' mm. time? And this obviously has a huge impact on people's mental health, which I know is something that you talk a lot about and you support people with uh, an awful lot as as well. And I think it's interesting that, as you say, you know, one of the ways in to talk to people might be about talking about love island, but ultimately you are still speaking about mental health and how it, it impacts people. And, you know, I think that his, historically when, you know, because you and I have spoken a lot previously about um, equality, diversity and inclusion when it's come to the railway and you know, traditionally, we perhaps weren't the most diverse of, of sectors. And so conversations about mental health historically would have gone the same way. You know, they would have been relatively non-existent. Whereas I think one of the things post-COVID is that we do have this better understanding now about wellness and mindfulness. And, you know, do I still do my daily um, meditation that I was doing during lockdown? Well, no, <laughs> that seems to have fallen by the way. But the same way as your time with Joe Wick. <laughs> It did, bless him. Um, I'm sure he misses me. Um, but but yes, I mean, it, it, is that something that you're definitely seeing then, that this uncertainty is impacting the mental health of the people that are working on the railway? Absolutely. Um, with uh, Mersey Rail, um, at the moment, we're just delivering um, a series of wellbeing workshops. Um, and we've kind of put these together with the idea of looking to address the challenges are facing the whole person. So if you picture, um, whether it's a member of booking office staff, a guard, a driver, um, whatever their role, for someone on the railway, there are challenges that aren't necessarily unique, but mm -hmm. certainly face them. So we're bringing together a whole variety of options. So for instance, um, we're providing access to services that um, will help them find a good diet. So there is a, a local um, company in Liverpool who produce um, ready-made meals, but are freshly made, get delivered twice a week. And we're actually saying, do you know what? Look at this guy. He produces them. He'll give you a balanced diet and he'll drop them on your doorstep. Um, also, it's really good porridge. <laughs> but hey. Um, and actually saying, do you know what? That is better. If you're working from six in the morning till two at afternoon, that is better than stopping at 10 o'clock and eating a pack of Jaffa cakes. Um, there's a time and a place for Jaffa cakes. Um, and is that not 10 o'clock in the morning? Not if it's every morning. Okay. Um, I'll make a note of that one. <laughs> thanks. Um, although I did notice when I came in here, I got a Lotus biscuit and they are the best. Um, and as we sort of look at it, so we've looked at diet, we've looked at sleep, we've looked at... Um, issues around um, finance and we've linked in in Mersey Rail um, the wellbeing managers linked in with a credit union okay. and all these different ways of just engaging and one of the things that, that I've done is I've created um, and it's available to all the staff a wellbeing journal and it's a single page each day or as often as they want to use it so some of them might do it each day they're at work and it helps them look and say do you know what this might be when I need support and you've got, it starts off with five smiley faces from really happy through to um, sort of looking really miserable. 
in your circle and you sort of say, well, actually, if you're circling these sad faces for a few days in a row, is there a way that you might mm. need help? And it's really interesting because you look at a pattern and some people's well-being and mental health is on a um, a monthly um, cycle. Mm-hmm. It's four weekly because... They're fine for three weeks, but for the last week of the month, it's before payday. Day. And actually all the stress has come because the fact they're worrying they've not got money mm. to feed the kids. Mm. And actually, well, saying, well, if you look at that, what about if at the start of the month you put away a couple of hundred quid somewhere you know you can't get it and you set it to come back and that way you've got that buffer zone at the end of the month. I think what's so interesting about this, Mike, is that, you know, when when we started this podcast and I introduced you as being a railway chaplain, people wouldn't necessarily think that this is the kind of thing that you get involved in. Um, I don't know what people might have thought that that you do and get involved in, but it, it's, it is that kind of counselling and support role, isn't it? I mean, there there is, you know, there are some quite tragic things that you'd have to deal with, with, with your job because, you know, it's unfortunate that some see the railway as being a means to an end sometimes, isn't there? And, and that's something that you end up counselling people about as well, isn't it? Yeah, so um, just before Christmas, I was involved in following up what was my 200th fatality in the four and a bit years that um, I've been on the railway. That's where somebody has chosen to use the railway as a means um, to end their life. And I just think it, it's worth saying at this point that um, language when we talk about this is really important um, and a lot of people talk about the language of committing suicide and we've um, tried to move away from that because it stigmatises and brings back that criminalisation of suicide it, and that it does being a crime. And I only read something about that only this morning that that's exactly why it was used. It was, it was to do with when it was a, a criminal act. Yeah, and it's the same way that you will get... Um, people who comment on social media and will say um i think about the poor driver who hit the person um and again that is attributing some kind of blame on the driver who is a traumatized um unwilling participant in it um we use all these rail safety campaigns that say um we can't uh, a train will take however long to stop and for driver after driver that I've met and talked to that have been involved in this situation, that fear and horror and trauma that actually, once they've experienced it, will not leave them again. Um, And I think that's one of the really important things when we're talking about people who choose to end their lives, who can't see another option. And suicide is a very permanent solution. Mm. Um, There is um, no way back after that. And... I'm aware of some of the stories of people who, where families or those close to them have said, I wish they'd talked because we could have worked this through. Mm. And suicide affects more of us than we would expect. Mm. Um, It affects our communities. It affects our neighbours, our families. And usually you'll find most people have a link somewhere to someone who has ended their life. But it's exactly as you say here, it's, you know, it the train driver is impacted, but it doesn't just stop as the train driver and, and the family and the person involved. It's, you know, something has to happen following on from that. There is a there is a process that needs to happen. And so 
from from a railway family point of view, it has wide ranging ripple effects to all of the people that you support in that regard. I think, yeah, um, we we deal with people who are um, not only the driver, but we will support train crew who are on board. Um, and then beside that, you think about um, network rails, mobile operations managers, these teams who go out, these first responders from network rail, whose job it is not only to make sure it is safe for the emergency services to work on the site, but, but also... Um, to make sure the railway afterwards is fit to hand back for, for service. And a lot of drivers will have um, one or two incidents in a career, um, whereas these mobile operations managers can go sometimes to five or six a year. Wow. Um, and again, with your normally the British Transport Police will send a team of five or six to a site and they will be involved in recovering the body. Mm. And the trauma of actually doing that and um, all the way back to the people who um, will have the train back at the depot mm-hmm. and will have the job of, of cleaning it, of mm-hmm. making sure it's fit for service again. Um, other witnesses, maybe mm-hmm. if it happens at a station, other tra- trains, railway staff. And there's all these different ways that impact so many. And I heard one statistic that suggested that um, up to 40 people um may be affected before we even start to think about the those who knew the, the victim and it is an absolute scary statistic um but um i think we've sort of got to look at it and say um can we can we fortify the railway so it's impossible then probably not um we can't put fences up like if you go down some of the new infrastructure we've built think about the elizabeth line mm-hmm. um those station doors line and yeah where we've got the, the doors that protect um is that feasible for the heavy rail heavy rail network no no we can't make the railway inaccessible um and we are looking at preventative ways of so we so prevention is better than a, a response so we're looking at, at the moment in Greater Manchester, we've just put um, signs up away from the platform ends that um, we're signposting towards good mental health, not just a crisis point. So we're actually linking into NHS services. And, and there's and there's a lot out there as well now, isn't there, about talking to people and, and also people on platforms being very conscious about other people around them as well in a form of, of prevention and... You know, I, I, I've seen kind of the signposts for Samaritans and things like that that are all upon the station. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's very sad. It's very sad for for everybody concerned. But as you say, it's about that. How can we how can we get to people before it gets to that point? And I think that's a, a really interesting point because we could put up all the crisis signage mm-hmm. um, and cover every station with it, but for someone in a moment of absolute crisis. Mm. If they don't want to ring them, they're not going to. And the intervention can come from rail staff and from um, members of the public. So when you're looking, you're going round. And if you intervene with somebody, you interrupt their chain of thought. And that might be all it takes. A few minutes is enough for that person's, um, the chemicals in their brain to just return to a, a more stable moment when they can look at self-preservation the rail the Samaritans have trained um, a quarter of a million people 
on suicide prevention. Wowzers. Um, okay. I think that's the number. Um, and um, they've got volunteers who will come in. But the fact is that we know that um, we need every member of the railway family to look and to say, I'm willing to, to take that risk. Mm. Um, I've felt before, can I go and speak to that person or will I look a complete idiot if I go up? And, and I've, I once, really early on, went and told her, um, I went, got on the train at Warrington and as I left and I looked out the window, there was a, a really um, unkempt looking guy at the end. He folded all of his clothes on a bench, uh, well, his coat and his sort of... I said, going to yeah, say, that would be a completely different story. That would be. Um, he'd folded his coat and some of his stuff and put his bag on a bench and he was standing at the end uh, of the platform. I'm like, oh, I've just done my training course. I'm trying to think, like, this fits all the bell. And I, I rang the signaller and said, look, I'm just really worried about this guy on the end of the platform too. And he says, oh, I'll have a look. And he had a look on and he said, right, I'll get someone on station to go and look. And he cautioned the train through. And, um, and it turns out it was really hard to spot the difference between... Um, a suicidal young man and a train spotter um, who was waiting for something to come the other way. Um, and I felt really bad, but not half as bad as I would have done. Had it have been the other? Had it been the other way round. And um, and I've, I've called BTP to train because I've been worried about the safety of young people. I had a couple of young girls on a train at 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I was like, well, let's get yeah. police them. Because I think actually... I'd rather be have a reputation for delaying a train by 10 minutes than reading something in Wigan today, the next day, about two girls who've gone missing. And that you feel that you could have prevented in some way. Yeah. I mean, Mike, I just, I just really hope that people listening to this now get a, a much better appreciation as to what it is you do. I think you're fabulous. All of your friends think you're fabulous as well in terms of all the work that you do and I mean, just just from a personal point of view, just I mean, not not only have you done stuff to help my family, um, but when you did uh, an online kind of support session after Her Majesty died last year, that recognition of the way that things will impact people, and actually just that ability to talk, which is something that perhaps within people's own organisations they might not, for whatever reason, feel comfortable to do. But but having you and the other railway chaplains uh, around, it gives that that third party to speak to who, you know, there isn't that concern of, oh, my goodness, am I going to say something and it's going to impact my job or my chance for promotion or w whatever it is. It's, it's it, you know, I think we should buy you a cape. Oh, I thought you said a cake and I got really excited. Um, <laughs> you can it, have a cake as well. Is, is the cake going to say, um, I'll clean up poo? But Rather than watch Love Island. Watch Love Island, yeah. I think that's like people do get scared. They think that if you, they phone their EAP, their Employment Employee Assistance Program, it's all going to get reported and sort of their manager's going to get a transcript of the, the session. And it's absolutely not. And like mainly because I think most managers I know really wouldn't want to listen to sort of any kind of support sessions. But it's it's confidential and that's in the terms and, and conditions. Um and I always say to people when they talk to me, we have complete confidence, assuming they are not going to tell me that if I had a driver and he said, I'm about to get on this train and drive it um, into the buffers at Euston at 100 miles an hour, um, then I'd ring someone. Yeah. Um, I don't know who, um, but 
um, you want to protect the safety of people. Mm-hmm. But actually, I want to protect the well-being. I want to help people going from that mentality of the uncertainty and the surviving, the I've got through today. And we've all been through those periods where we get to the end of a day and we think, I've got to do it all again tomorrow. <laughs> it's true. And I want to get to the stage where people get to the end of the day and think, I get to do it all tomorrow. Yeah. And I want to give people that sense of hope. And I told a, a story um, about somebody who I spent some time with quite early on um, after she'd had a miscarriage. And we we sat and um, we talked and it just, um, I really felt like I wasn't helping for a while. And we met sort of every couple of times a week and then once a week and then every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But in the end, she she stopped calling. And I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or not, but I'd said I'd let her dictate the um, the frequency of the visits. Um, and then um, about 12 months later, just over, I got a, a WhatsApp message. At, it was about midnight, and I'm really not very good at that time of day. Uh, I'm not a late-night person or an early morning person. I, I'm okay for about 20 minutes in the afternoon. Um, and I got this picture of her with a baby. Oh, how wonderful. And she was like, um, look what arrived. Look who arrived. And I'm like, and I was, I don't often get lost for words. And I resorted to um, just a smiley face um, while I composed myself. And it really did think sort of, you weep with people mm-hmm. when they're weeping and mourning. And then you get to share their joys. Yeah. And you absolutely do. Um, I've seen people go through some horrendous times and um, someone went through some really tough stuff and I didn't walk past them without actually recognising them there on a station the other day and they came up and jumped on my back and I thought I was being mugged. Um, but um, to, and um, went out for coffee and just heard the, the stories. And we've got, I think, one of the things I was going to say I didn't um, is the resource that we've got that has the most potential is the people on the railway. Mm-hmm. And we can look at all these new innovative bits of technology, but they've got limited use without the people that yeah. do it. And actually, um, I want to see us bring a place where our railway family is thriving again. I'm really, it's starting to be a bit contagious that that depression that's spread around the industry at the moment. Yeah. And there's all this, oh, what will happen? And I want to get to that stage where I can see that buzz mm-hmm. in people. Um, sort of, there was someone said to me as a joke the other day, oh, so-and-so's new today, um, but don't worry, we'll knock that smile out of him before very long. And the truth is, um, that doesn't take very long. Mm-hmm. Um joined the railway on the Monday, was meant to be striking on the Thursday. Um, and how do we go back to creating a railway family? And do you know what? We're all in families where we have rough days. Um, we all have families where we go home and my wife will tell me off for something I've done or not done. Um, and sort of, did you did you close the bathroom window? <laughs> yes, we were going out. It was drying out. And we all do those things where we get told off. And that's a family. We do. We get told off and we move on. And I want us to get back to this railway family where actually we're a, a dysfunctional family at the minute. I think we've always been a little dysfunctional. But 
But I think I'd like to wrap up today by saying I'm really glad that you've kind of got this like big brother role, not in the weird spying sort of way, but in the looking after us kind of way. Because I think that that's definitely the role that that you do. And I think if anybody's going to help bringing that joy back, it's it's going to be you and the rest of the gang. Yeah. And I, I get really excited about what the railway can be and what we can all be. Let's celebrate. I was out on International Women's Day last week, week before last, and it reminded me when I look around, we have got some absolutely amazing people. Mm-hmm. Um, people who maybe wouldn't have been in the industry a generation ago. Mm-hmm. And actually, when we tap into those people, we're going to see amazing things. And I've got, I've got optimism. Maybe it's long-term optimism, I don't know. But I think we can see great things in the future. What a way to end. Let's call it a day. Thank you ever so much, Mike.